0: I want us to give an incredible welcome to Charlie Kirk, the amazing man of God. Come on, put your hands together. Give him a great, great shout. Yeah, grab a
1: seat. Wow. Come Thank on, let's you. give him
0: one more great shout. Come on, he left these beautiful bright. you, Charlie. Thank you for taking time away. You're a daddy now.
1: I am. Praise God. How old is beautiful little Gigi? Uh, seven months. She is yeah.
0: seven months old and cute as a button. So Thank beautiful. You. Has that, has that, how's that impacted you? Oh, it,
1: it, it changes everything. And um, if, some, if you thought I was radical before, nothing radicalizes you like fatherhood, I'll tell you what. And um, what do I mean by that? It not only gives you increased purpose and increased meaning, but also, you know, in the culture fight that we're in right now, so much involves children. There's a reason for that. We could talk about that. And it's all throughout the scriptures of evil tyrants filled with dark spirits going after the firstborn, going after children. And when you have a child of your own, it motivates you to want to win and crush these evil people yeah. more so than ever before. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so
0: much for taking time away from beautiful Erica and beautiful well, Gigi. Well,
1: I, I, I was looking forward to this for quite some time. We're also going to Awaken Utah next week, which I'm really excited about that. And, you know, Jürgen, both you and Leanne deserve such great credit. You know, I, I speak at, I really mean this. You're being led very well here. You are. And boldly and courageously and biblically. You really are.
0: You're very, very kind. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I mean that. It really is a time where we're seeing the separation of people that are courageous and cowards. And again, I speak all across the country. And one of the common questions I get, Charlie... Where do I find a pastor? I never get that question from people in San Marcos. I, I just don't. And we have some other good friends here, Pastor Greg Denham and some other good pastors that are fighting, great people. Beautiful people, and, beautiful, magnificent warriors. But there is something I, really special about what God is doing in California. I know it seems overwhelming, I know there's so much, but it's amazing when I visit some of these other states even though they might seem freer politically, they do not have a spirit of boldness or action or community that you have at this church. You have a lot to be thankful for. You have a lot to be thankful for at this church.
0: Thank you. You know, the Bible says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. And, uh, you know, sadly, we didn't you know, we're seeing the righteous beginning to rise, and when the righteous rise, the lion roars. I've got got some questions. If, is that okay if I if I jump? You could do whatever you? you want. Yes. Well, you know, uh, where, where, you know, I, whenever the media prints something, I always believe the opposite is true. Right now, because they're 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 freaking liars. So they tried, to, they tried to print a couple of hit pieces about how Christianity is dying in America and people are leaving the church in droves. That's certainly not, not the experience from the pastors that I'm talking to. Christianity, it, to me, is, is rising in America, but I heard you on a podcast talking about the five different religions that are seeking to replace Christianity. Can you open that up for...
1: Yeah, so there's um, we, we are all inheritors of a Christian tradition, whether we like it or not, and we should be so thankful for it. Things that we take for granted that your secular non-religious friends would act as if is common sense, protecting of children, for example, or natural rights, the idea of borders, the idea of private property, these all come from a biblical Christian inheritance. And so as Christianity has become less popular in America, and certain churches are seeing church attendance go down, this one's increasing because you're not woke and you're biblical and you have great leaders, but in certain churches, they are seeing it go down. And that it's important to note that we have a God-sized shaped hole in our heart and something will always seek to fill it. And so if you read the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, through a very specific lens, understanding the context of which it was written was a refutation of pagan polytheistic river civilization, fake religions. Fake religions are the norm. There's only one true way, and that is Jesus Christ. We call that Christianity. Now. The way that we teach our children, though, it's it's as if, oh, there's Christians, then there's non-religious. This idea of not believing in God is a hyper-radical kind of new phenomenon. The norm is actually believing in fake gods. And so this idea of saying, I don't believe in God, is very modern, and it's actually not very sustainable. Atheism is a problem. But a bigger problem is somebody that creates a fake God or a fabricated version of Christianity, uses some of the worship elements, tithing, offering, community, atonement, promise of the afterlife, appropriates Christian promises, and puts them under a fake religion that's actually much more attractive and actually will grow a lot more. This idea of convincing wide swaths of people that there is not a divine order or there isn't somebody in charge or some reason for existence, actually is probably going to fall flat on its face. I'm not saying it's totally unpopular, but the greater threat is the five fake religions that are filling the void. I, I did a whole speech on this earlier in the week. I'm writing a long essay on it. I might even write a book on it because I, I really haven't heard many pastors lean into this because if we then acknowledge that Christianity needs to get more popular, I think we can agree with that. What are the threats up against it? Well, let's go to one that is really dominating our time, earth worship, otherwise known as environmentalism. This is not new, by the way. So, if we were to say, Charlie, can you describe God, the God of the Bible, to a layman, someone that doesn't understand? God is many things. Here's the best way I could describe it God is above nature, God is moral, God is personal, and God is holy. Those are four characteristics of the God of the Bible. You can get to know God, God is holy, not profane. Also, God is moral. God will tell you what is right and what is wrong, God makes judgments but also God is not in nature. This was a profound moral breakthrough of Genesis especially, because prior to the Hebrews, prior to the people of Israel, prior to the beginning of the truth developing in written form, God was supposed to be found in nature. You worship the sun, you worship the mountain, you worship the river, that you go seek into nature to go find God. The, the argument made in Genesis, the truth says, no, 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 that God is so powerful, he spoke nature into existence, that, that, that you do not worship nature, you worship God who created nature. That is a completely different way of viewing our existence. Now, why does this matter? The environmentalists that are really earth worshipers are doing the very same thing, that Gnostic Hermeticists did 2000 years ago, where they say the world is about about to end, and the tree, the Delta smelt, the river, the cacti, they matter more than man. So there's a hierarchy, okay? Nature, man, God. We are above nature and below God. It's very important. The radical environmentalists do not believe that. They believe we are the polluters of nature. Now, it, I, one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say, well, Charlie, it, it is, it, the, the, it's a natural thing to do. Uh, to, to, you, you can't prevent somebody's nature. We must understand nature, but civilization, by its definition, is us trying to restrain our nature. I'll give you a great example. You must teach a child manners at dinner. The nature is to be rude and to burp and to belch and to the the idea of manners. Where does that come from? It's kind of a silly example, I think. It's out of the respect for others because of human equality, that they do not want to hear your bodily noises. They want you to act in a certain code of conduct. Now, but if we were to say that nature matters, we would never have rules, customs, codes, or traditions that would restrain your own, pro- your own pre-programmed way of conduct, conduct at either at a dinner table or otherwise. Now, the, when you say that God is above nature, this is very important. Nature is not moral, nature is not holy, and nature is not personal. If you go out in the woods, you will not find any three of those things. And so one of the fake religions, it's so attractive to young people because God did such an amazing job of creating nature. It's the closest thing they can try to find to the divine. But the, the way the the unattractive element or the, the pernicious element, the evil element, is that it is inherently anti-human because when there is a decision that needs to be made, they will say we must reduce the earth's population, we must reduce human activity to try to save nature. So that's one of five, I can keep going Jurgen, on that, but earth worship is one that dominates our time. The second one that I think is probably the most dangerous and the most widespread is the religion of anti-racism or the cult of diversity. Um, this is largely, this is the most dangerous of all five in the immediate, uh, and so, how does this manifest? This manifests in a lot of different ways. Hyper-focused on race, black-only dormitories, Grand Valley State University, for example, Columbia University, they have black-only graduation ceremonies now, Jurgen, where they do not allow whites to go to these graduation ceremonies. And what's so perplexing about the religion of anti-racism is that this is not being led by Hispanics or blacks. That the cleric, the, the 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 people, the clergy of the religion of anti-racism are white liberal suburban wine moms. And that's what's so strange about it, right? Is that this is not being driven by your average middle-class black American. These are people that reject Christianity, engage in secularism, realize they're empty, find something that looks like a religion. And their meaning then is to hate themselves, and they think they can atone for it by donating to BLM or apologizing for how they look. That gives them almost a quasi-religious experience. If you dive into the BLM code of conduct, they basically have taken Christianity, and they totally, they put it through a lens. They say, okay, we're still going to meet, we're still going to tithe, we're still going to have offerings, we're still going to say you have original sin." You see, the cult of diversity and the religion of anti-racism takes this idea of original sin. They just say the original sin is not the garden. The original sin is your melanin content. The original sin is how you look. So they take all these elements of Christianity and they pervert it. And here's what's so dangerous. This is why I think it's the most dangerous is that it's the one that people are the least willing to fight on. If I go through the five, you'll realize that some are, wow, this is the one that paralyzes people, and they do it through the weaponization of name-calling. And more so than any other time in American history, have we seen good people that are afraid to act because of a name that they might be called? It is unprecedented. We have never seen so many people that know something is evil happening around them, and the cost is being called something they wish they would not be called. Racist, bigot. Let me be very clear. Racism and bigotry is mostly coming from the left. However, if you are a racist or a bigot, I hope you guys find help with that. But you're probably not, because we have a supply and demand problem for racism and bigotry in America. We are so unbelievably not racist, when you see a hate crime hoax, most of the time it's a hoax of somebody that is actually trying to create racism out of nowhere. We are such a decent, not racist country that... The incentive structure is to fake your own hate crime. So that, that's the second one. I'm sorry, Juergen. You can interrupt me at any time. Okay. I'm loving this. Okay. This is, this is like Bible College 101. Yeah. So, well, I think it's important because pastors and Christians, you must know the religions you're competing against, right? And so anyway, that's the second one, the 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 cult of diversity and the religion of anti-racism. The third of which is a very broad one, but it applies directly to the trans thing, which is the religion of tolerance. This is one that I see, this is probably the most widespread in weak Christian churches right, where they say we must be tolerant of others. That is not correct. You, mu- you could be compassionate and loving. You should never tolerate evil, period. You should never tolerate evil. In fact, Psalm 9710, if you love God, you must hate evil. That hating evil actually shows how much you love the divine, The religion of tolerance gives us insane pathological ideas that are institutionalized into our culture, institutionalized into our system and our code of conduct, where good people know it's wrong and they do nothing because they say they must be tolerant. For example, Thomas, the swimmer that competes and wins a NCAA championship as a man against other women, and we say we must do nothing where track championship after track championship are being won by biological men competing against women. And so, and not just competing, but winning. And they're they're bullying them, and they're antagonistic, and they're narcissistic, and they're cheaters, and they're all those things. And so some, you know, criticism I receive is, well, Charlie, aren't you a Christian? Don't you love that person? Of course we do. That person's made in the image of God. We should have compassion for that person. However... The question is then what do you do with somebody that is suffering with a mental delusion? If somebody shows up at the airplane ticket counter and says, I have an imaginary friend, I demand two seats on a plane. <laughs> you would say, well, I need to charge you for two seats. No, 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 it's my truth. It's actually, I'm a dual personality. Say, so you're insane. If someone is anorexic and says, I need liposuction, you'd say, no, no, you're suffering under a mental delusion. If somebody says I'm offended every single time I see other people eat in public, do we stop eating in public? Do we now reaccommodate society for other people's mental struggles or issues? What we are living through is that we now have to change our customs, our code of beliefs, our behaviors for people that are personally struggling with something. That is evil, everybody. That is wrong. It is the tyranny of the minority. And we see we're seeing this all over. And so the religion of tolerance tells us that we worship this idea of tolerance because it's really, I think I'm a good person religion, yeah. when in reality you are weak. You're weak, in, you're weak in the when you see the strong that are willing to crush the weak, and that is the question of a society: Are the strong willing to use their power to protect those that don't have as much strength? Only Christianity mandates the strong to use their power to protect those that are not as powerful. That is a uniquely Christian principle. Going back to what I talked about, nature, though, if you look at nature, what does nature tell you? Yeah. That the strong get stronger and the weak die? The religion of Christianity says, no, 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 no. We stand up for the least of these in our society. We stand up for those that can't defend themselves. Okay. Number four is the worship of power. Uh, This one is very dangerous. Um, There's several examples of this, mostly in our political elite. These are people that have made it their life's purpose to dominate others. I will get to Fauci in the final one because he could qualify there. But he, he, he really is the archbishop of a different religion. I'm going to instead, I've talked about this religion before at this church, but I'll expand on it. I'm actually going to go more micro than macro, because I could talk about James Comey, and I could talk about Andy McCabe, and I could talk about Mayorkas and people that worship power, but a different subcategory of the population actually worship power and all of us have experienced it. They find their purpose, their meaning, their drive in being able to terrorize others. We call them micro tyrants. So the more stupid rules you have, the more stupid people you need to enforce the stupid rules because good people refuse to enforce stupid rules. So when, during the lockdowns, during the COVIDian tyranny, when we had all these rules, all of a sudden an emergence of a new subgroup, an undercurrent we never knew existed, Of people that find their religious significance in enforcing, yes, and in in, in enforcing whether or not you're wearing your mask correctly, right? And these are people, Starbucks baristas who were never uh, ran for elected office, and we've never knew them before. They've never had to really be in a position of power for any other reason except they happen to work in Starbucks, but because a silly, stupid rule all of a sudden came out of nowhere, they look around, they're like, well, someone has to enforce it. We're gonna have this 19-year-old North African lesbian studies major from San Diego State University have all this power to police my breathing when I'm trying to get a cold brew. And- You go and you try to pick up the cold brew, and your mask is a little bit down, and that person, she, whatever pronouns that person uses, ridiculous what's happening in our society, this person gets off and is excited about enforcing the dumb rule because they become unbelievably important for the first time in their life. That's a mic drop moment. When, if Christianity was in that person's life, that rule would not be as important because they would look at themselves as a son or a daughter of the divine. That rule would then be looked at completely differently, not as a way to exert power or authority, but instead as, well, that's probably a cruel way to treat another person made in the image of God, right? So the, the religion of power is very attractive as Christianity is not as popular. Okay, the fifth religion is really the religion of scientism. And that's where Fauci could be the archbishop. He, he's in both the religion of power and the religion of scientism. Very important. Never was it about trusting the science. It was about trusting the scientists that they liked over the last couple of years. Those are two completely different things. And the religion of scientism um, has been around for over 100 years. The entire fourth branch of government really came to be with this idea of the council of experts that... There are people that know better than you, that committees that you'll never come in touch with can meet privately, and they're gonna make decisions, and they'll be able to get our society closer towards a utopia. This came from Woodrow Wilson. There's a long tradition here. I don't need to bore you with all the details, but we've seen how dangerous that religion of scientism is able to be enforced, but what was even more disappointing is not just the people that enforce it. Francis Collins, Walensky, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, is that the religion of scientism can actually be more broadly into really kind of the idolatry of experts, is another way to put it, which is the experts have told us to do this, even though you know the rule is so silly, or you know the rule, again, is stupid. And again, so we lived through this, and again, scientists, well, actually, accurate historians are going to go back in time the ones that have any sort of courage to find the truth, and they're gonna be perplexed. They're gonna say, wait a second, help me understand this. So you lock down all of society, and then you allow people to go on airplanes, and you hyper-enforce the mask policy, except of course when they're eating or drinking, right? Because when they're eating or drinking, the virus is just in complete suspense in the air. It stops, right? And that, if, and if you, when you're not eating or drinking, you have to wear the mask properly, and you could do that at 35,000 feet with 350 people packed like sardines, but the restaurants are closed in Newark, New Jersey, and the restaurants are closed in Los Angeles, the two cities you're flying from, but shut up and trust the science. And you really have to wonder, is it actually about science? And this is what's so important. We as Christians must understand The heritage of modern science came from Bible-believing Christians, but it changed. I'm going to tell you how it changed. Sir Francis Bacon invented the scientific method. Sir Isaac Newton wrote more about biblical prophecy in Isaiah than he did even about physics. So this idea of the inquiry into the natural world is a very uniquely Christian idea because if you believe that there is a logos, a cosmological harmony to our existence, then therefore the universe is worth exploring and understanding. Those words are very important. Remember them. Exploring and understanding. Something changed in the 1800s with the Hegelians and the German historicists where they decided to go a completely different direction. They said, we do not desire to know about nature. We desire to remake and dominate nature. That is completely different, right? That it's not as if we want to try to understand why is it that, you know, where does wind come from or, you know, why are temperatures increase or decrease, or, you know, germ theory or how can we possibly create, you know. Know, better resistance to, um, to viruses or antibiotics. No, no, no. Instead, they said, we want to remake the creation in our image. And the, the religion of scientism is exactly why there is a demonic pathological fixation on both abortion and the trans issue. Both of them are the will of man exerting themselves over the creation of God. both of them. That I get to decide who gets to live and die. That I get to decide whether or not you're a man or woman. And so the religion of scientism is not about understanding the natural world or saving lives. The religion of scientism is that the will of I is going to dominate what the divine created. And we, this is exactly what you know. played out the last couple years, that's the mRNA gene altering shot. That is why they, they're trying to put hormone blockers in kids' hands, is because they're trying to make it possible in the scientific arena that you can change what was naturally put into place. And so science made a complete diversion. So I am a big fan of science if it's done under the correct presupposition, which is do we believe that there's a logos and we desire to know and understand and stand in awe and wonder of the beauty and the intricacy of what God created? Or are you going into science instead with a spirit to alter, with a spirit with a spirit of contempt? The, the religion of scientism is filled with a dark spirit of I can do it better incredible 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 Charlie uh, sorry I took so no are-, are
0: you kidding I was that was that was just exceptional so um, all five of those religions actually uh, uh, have their their Genesis their seed in Genesis 1 to 11. You know, Nimrod um, was the one who wanted to dominate. He he set up a an empirical kind of society where men dominated men. God never created man to be dominated by other men. Um, as someone who obviously is very, very learned and uh, studies, tell us Genesis 1 to 11. You, I know you've got some wonderful thoughts on that.
1: Sure, I'll... Uh we have a couple of minutes before we go to Q and A, but I think it's the most important part of the Bible. I also think it should instruct every Christian politically. Um, it, Genesis one through eleven is the whole ball game. So let me just kind of isolate a couple verses, okay? Genesis one one: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That verse means that your creation matters. There's a purpose to your existence. We're not here by accident, and that there is a God, and you are not Him. That's a big deal. Genesis 1.26. That alone would help so many people. That alone. Genesis 1.1 should crush those five fake religions. Genesis 1.1 is the shield and the sword against those five pagan river civilization religions. Now understand that those five religions are not new. They're just they're just repackaged manifestations of an unclean spirit, a Luciferian desire of all sorts of different type of pagan river civilizations in Egypt and Mesopotamia that the Hebrews were fighting and challenging against. You have to understand, this idea of monotheism, one God, is so unbelievably rare in the history of fake religions. I mean, there's all these fake religions, and all of a sudden, monotheism comes along, and God spoke it into existence. What do you mean God's above nature? And not only that, but God chooses people not based on... Characteristics that we think matter—beauty or how they look—but instead on moral character. God chose Noah because he was a righteous man in his generation. The pagan river civilization of Mesopotamia said the gods would choose based on the best looking. Now, why is polytheism so dangerous? By the way, and these are all polytheistic in nature. Poly meaning many, many gods, many moralities. If you have one God, there is one morality. You want to prevent man from doing what is right in his own eyes? You must restore the promise of monotheism, which is Christianity. So Genesis 1 through 11 creates that entire moral foundation Genesis 126, 127, what is man? If I could set every pastor down, I think I could persuade many of them. And they say, well, I don't do politics. And I'll say, well, why are you trying to not be involved in something that human beings are engaged in? And, I, and you have to ask them, anyone that has a pastor like this, ask them to define politics. They cannot define politics. Politics is so simple to define. Politics is deciding who gets power and when they get power and how they're able to use the power. That's it. Politics is a question of power in human beings, okay? You might say, well, I don't care about that question. That is such a silly thing to say because the Bible has a lot to say about who gets power and how they get power and when they get power. In fact, the Bible says that power should be separate, that there should be checks and balances, that the people need to have consent if only a country adopted those ideas and put them into their constitution, which by the way, is why the constitution is the greatest political document ever written. Ever written, ever written. And so let me just kind of just dwell on that a little bit more, is that what is a human being? You can choose to answer this question, obviously with the secular humanist way or the Christian way, the secular humanist says a human being is a mistake, a combination of cells, Darwinian evolution, roll of the dice, we happen to exist. We believe that human beings have intentionality purpose you're made in the image of the divine you have a soul therefore that in, that necessitates human equality human rights and that government politics should not be able to crush that human being that that human being is a reflection of the divine order as we know that's such an that's a huge concept you could spend the rest of your life just mulling over and praying over so the question of what is a human being is the most important question Because the secular humanists, all five of those fake religions would not answer that a human being is made in the image of God. They would say that a human being is a mistake or we don't know or that it's a mystery. So it is right there. So Genesis 1.1 and then Genesis 1.26 and 1.27. Then the next question should be, okay, we know what a human being is. Are human beings naturally good? This is an unbelievably important question. If human beings are naturally good, then we must be able to explain all the evil in the world. And by the way, the secular humanists, the scientists, the earth worshipers, the cult of diversity, the anti-racism folks, they explain evil not in the heart of man, not with original sin in the fall. They say that evil comes from the systems and the structures that we have inherited. Therefore, we get rid of evil by getting rid of Western society and getting rid of the patriarchy and getting rid of Christianity. If you can't answer where evil comes from, then you're going to make really bad political decisions afterwards because they say we must tear all this stuff down and then we'll be able to usher in some form of goodness. Genesis says clearly the heart of man is flawed from birth, that we know that we are dealing with a broken raw material. Therefore, we should have awe and wonder anytime we do anything right or good. In fact, we should say, wow, the fact that we aren't tearing each other apart every single day is a massive moral advancement. Let's figure out how we did that. Christianity. And, so, and, and then finally, and Jurgen, you alluded to this, my favorite political verse of my political chapter that I wish every pastor taught correctly is Genesis 11. Uh, Genesis 11 is exactly what happens when you try to build a, metro, a, a metropolitan centralized government to honor yourself and to not honor God. As it said very clearly there in the people of Babel, which means God confuses, by the way, um, it, they, they said that we are going to make a name for ourselves that it will come and touch the heavens. Both the American founding fathers And our Lord do not like major cities that want to make themselves gods. The American founding fathers believed in decentralized power. And so a pastor says, I don't believe in politics. Then why on earth would God put Genesis 11 right there? That's the final thing you read before God calls Abram. The last thing you read before that we know is recorded history. Because for Genesis 1 through 11, you could debate of the exact time. We know exactly down to like 100th, like thirtieth year when Abram was called. And so history starts in Genesis 12, as we know it, Genesis 11, because that final reminder that God is giving you, the interlude, the bridge is, hey, when you build a political system, when you build a city, you better believe that that power is not centralized. You better believe the heart of man will try to do something to terrorize others. So how does God handle it? He scatters and confuses them. He offers judgment as a way to say to us, hey, you try to build something in your your own way. World Economic Forum, Globalism, Great Reset, that that will be scattered and that will be dishonored. That is a political teaching.
0: Come on, mic drop, mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. All right, we're gonna do question and answers. I've got one more question before the question and answers, but we're gonna line up on the sides of the stage and we're gonna have mics, how are we gonna do that? Is Samuel Duth and who else? And Mike Finn, the the, the two most handsome men in the church. Come on. It's like El Guapo, El Guapo. On either side. Just one one question on that. Um, just like in the days of Elijah, there were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. The Bible says that they were fed by, by Jezebel at Jezebel's table, meaning that these were government PBS, these were government-funded, government-sustained and they were voices. There was one voice crying out for God, 850 voices giving everything else. Uh, there, was, there was an incredible pessimism. In fact, when Elijah comes to the people, he says, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? They answered him, not a word. So the, the people were really so discouraged they lost their voice. I know that you've been talking a little bit lately about a rise in, like almost like a pessimistic nihilism, hopelessness of the world's gone. Out, the evil are in control. The darkness what give us one thought like why should we not quit why should yes, we not give up of
1: course up? so so a couple two thoughts on this and then I, I do want to get to some questions the first category are really well-meaning christians that write me emails i have a human laboratory because i host a radio program every day and thank you by the way those of you that watch on Real america's voice and podcasting thank you you guys make our show possible and we work very hard and and you bless me with your emails your thoughts and your prayers but there there are a fair amount of emails i get sometimes hundreds a week, Charlie, Jesus is coming next Thursday. Stop all this melodrama. He's coming soon. We don't need to to act anymore. And then I always respond, are you sure it's Thursday? I always respond. (laughs) And they don't like it. It's not not always a fun exchange. But I read every email. When I say I read every email at freedom at charliekirk.com, I mean it. I don't respond to every email, but I read every one. And I learn so much about (laughs) Humanity, <laughs> you, read, you read 10, 15,000 emails a week, you learn, you learn more than any pollster could ever tell you. So I have a pretty good heart, kind of understanding of the heartbeat there. So it is, it is a bad theological reading, a poor theological reading is a better way to say it, poor theological reading to say that I am not going to act, I am not going to be bold because I believe that we are in the end times. You might be right, but the day and the hour is unknown. I do believe that Jesus is coming back. But if you believe, this is what's interesting. If you believe that Jesus is coming back soon, you should have the opposite view. You should be leaning in. You should be taking terrain. You should be pouring in. You should be acting more courageously and boldly, not retreating and surrendering. Second, the second that I I need to talk to is an unfortunate thing that really manifests in the last two weeks where there is just kind of this Charlie, I don't think that my grandkids should have kids. I would not bring kids into this world. I I, I find this to be preposterous. The great Martin Luther said, even if the world was ending today, I would plant an apple tree. What a beautiful, beautiful quote. And there's a verse from Ecclesiastes that says something very similar, which is you don't don't just look at the winds of whether or not you sow. Too many people, I think, check the weather in the stock market before they say, I am going to act. My main message to every church, every campus, every believer is that you could be disgusted, depressed, disgruntled at the macro but you have zero excuse to not act boldly and courageously in the micro. You must continue to pour in, to build big families, to build strong churches, to expand businesses. The enemy would love nothing more than to create a sense of paralysis amongst believers. The last best hope for liberty because things look really bleak on the outside. Uh, of course, there's a lot of negativity. I, we could talk about it, we could t- th- th- that's actually irrelevant to what I try to end every speech with, which is, what are you going to do? And if you ask the question, well, Charlie, what else am I to do? We'll talk about at the end of, the, of what you can do. It's a very simple question, which is, if you have not lost anything significant in the last couple of years, you're a spectator and you're not in the arena. It's that simple. You can judge Ouch. You can judge a participant versus a spectator verse on how much they have lost, not how much they have gained. Now, we've gained a lot at Turning Point USA. You might say, well, Charlie, what have you lost? Friendships, relationships with family members, time. We've lost a lot. We have the battle wounds and the scars to show it. Praise God we fought through it, and we're leaning in and doing more. But I find the people that are doing the most are saying, Charlie, I'm glad I lost those things. Because actually, God has now freed me up to fight even harder to be able to win. Thank
0: you, Charlie. Come on, put your hands together. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a voice. Great wisdom, great courage, great clarity. I honestly believe that Charlie is a prophetic voice to our time. Samuel, are we going with you first? Samuel? Maybe. There
1: we go. There we go. All right. Here we go. First question.
2: Hi, Charlie. My name's Kiara. We've met before. Um, I go to San Diego State University with the I go to school with the North African Gender Studies barista at my school that you had mentioned earlier, and she says hi. So, my question uh, is related to homelessness. Um, for, um, I'm from San Diego, but I do live out here uh, near Temecula. But in San Diego, our mayor, Todd Gloria, has worked with Gavin Newsom to start a conservatorship program where homeless people would be basically taken off the streets and given to the hands of government, where they would be given prescribed medications, provided housing, provided psychological services, um, all at the expense of taxpayers. On the surface, this program does seem like a good idea to someone who's not like us, but my question is, what is the conservative answer to addressing homelessness without using big government, big brother to take them That's off right. the street and address their alcohol, <clears throat> drugs, and all their problems?
1: That's a, it's a great question. So. I mean, first of all, that that program will be way over budget and totally messed up by the California government, but that's that's not that's not even going to be my answer. We don't have to think too deeply about it because conservative mayors like Rudy Giuliani, they've solved homeless homeless, homeless crisis. So let's. okay. so which one of the five fake religions does this fall under the religion of tolerance? We should not have tolerance for public degeneracy or depravity of our streets. We should have compassion for the person and find healing for that person. But the activity, I have no tolerance for somebody that goes around and exposing others with public nudity or publicly defecating. That act should be considered intolerable. So what is the conservative solution? You should. You should draw a very fine line. You should make it illegal. You don't have to throw them in prison. But yes, you should spend time and energy and resources to continually say, you can't go there. You can't do that. This is not your street. You can't do that. And what New York City found under Rudy Giuliani is, yeah, it's a messy nine months, but you do it humanely. You expand the homeless shelters. But eventually, the homeless learn the rules and they follow the rules and homeless went, homelessness went down dramatically. You get more of what you subsidize. So if what you're telling me right now is the government is gonna come in with housing and money, you're gonna get more homelessness, not less homelessness. And And finally, at the, it's a very complex issue. I have spent some time in homeless encampments and going through it. There is, a, there is a group of people there that of course are mentally you know going through struggles and they need help and they need compassionate care. However, this goes to the entire trans thing as well. We should not have to accommodate clean streets, safe streets, and a society that functions because of somebody else's problem. And so you think about it, it's exactly the same thing as the trans thing, right? that I have to go walk through, you know, I don't know how San Diego is, but downtown LA, where you f- it, it depresses your mood, it brings down your spirit. It makes you feel as if we can't solve problems. We're not even able to issue care. I think it creates a bad standard for our children. It creates a messy society. I don't like any of it. And so I don't think we should tolerate the act of public encampments, all the while having, of course, a moral prerogative to give the people compassionate care. That's my answer to that, thank you very much.
0: Absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Mikey Finn. Mike's
1: Mike. Hello, there we there go. There we go. Ooh. Worship team, how's that sound? We good? All right, there we go.
3: Hi Charlie. Hi, my name is Josie, I'm a registered nurse. I'm a mom, I'm a born and raised Christian, immigrant, educated. My question actually, two things. When are you running for office? <laughs> no. And then number two. So I have two kids, one is in elementary and then um, one is in high school. So with the public, the, the school district right now, um, with uh, um, CRT and then um, gender equality, so the parents right now are being labeled as uh, domestic terrorists. Correct. What can you, uh, what advice can you give us parents, or what can you do to help us fight the our fight because we're kind of losing the battle with the uh, with uh, um, the the school district right now um, with the. Uh, the the books that are in the library right now that we cannot really um, um, we cannot really um, yep. you know what I mean. Got it. So yes. what what can you help? How, sure. What can you do to help us?
1: Sure. Uh, so the first question I I'm not running for office. That's not going to happen. But <laughs> l- l- let me tell you what you might say, Charlie. What do you do? I, I think we're just I'm just beginning. If God wants me to continue on this path, hopefully a very meaningful and purposeful daily task of educating people, millions of people, three hours live on radio, podcasting. I feel called to that, I love it. Um, we're bringing people to the Lord every day. We're bringing people away from these left-wing lies every single day. Um, I have absolute freedom to say what I want whenever I wanna say. I have zero, I mean, zero reservations about speaking my mind, um, and I i see it impacting. and. Well, while I, I, while, I, while I appreciate the compliment, Charlie, you're gonna run for office, I would rather have a program and an organization Turning Point USA and Turning Point Action all working in harmony to be able to rise up a new generation of people to run for office and hold the people that are already elected that have run for office and then be able to be a daily drumbeat to hopefully encourage you, clarify the lies, and challenge it. So that's what I feel personally called to in this moment in my life. And I think, and I pray, that actually might be a bigger impact than just being a single office holder in Washington, D.C. I, 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 I believe that. But, okay, so as far as the CRT, you have to fight. Who cares if they call you a domestic terrorist? Keep on showing up at these meetings. We, we need to flood these school board meetings. And look, I, I personally am never gonna send my daughter to a government school. We're homeschooling, we're not doing any of this nonsense. It's not going to happen, okay? We're not doing it. But I, I want to I wanna say you have a beautiful heart because your kids are being taught outright lies. And you could turn that negative into a positive, but you have to remind your kids every day that they are lies. And if you do this correctly, your kids will graduate tougher and more resilient because of the nonsense being thrown at them. So while the situation is not ideal, I don't have any sort of profound plan to be able to remove CRT from a local school board because even taking over the school board, they have ways to dodge it and all that. What I can tell you though, is that your daily hourly involvement in your child's upbringing can create them with a missionary spirit to be in that high school, to separate the lie from truth, and they will be so tough by the time they enter college. If they go, they probably shouldn't, but if they go to college, they will be battle-ready to fight for righteousness. (laughs) Boom. Samuel, can, can I say one Please thing? go, yeah, please, yeah. So as we're doing this, just one way that you could personally bless me, by the way, it's no charge. Um, it's just to follow this QR code and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we work very hard, three podcasts a day, in addition to all the travel and Turning Point USA. So you just take out your phone. If you do that throughout, as we're answering questions, it's a way to personally bless us uh, and me uh, here tonight. So uh, I'll make one other plug in a second, but thank you for putting that up, Jürgen. It really is sweet, yes. Awesome, here with Grace.
3: Um, So I'm 11 years old in sixth grade and I just want to ask you what you can say to the youth directly on how we can um, show wisdom in these schools and show um, how can we fight for our battle in this generation as well.
0: That's hope for the future right
1: there. Look, I, 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 when people tell me to stop having, chil- you know, stop having children, I say, really? Yeah. Exactly. They're your hope. Exactly. They say, I don't want to bring kids into this dark world. I say, well, maybe they might light it up. Yeah. The fact that you're 12 years old and you're even dwelling over this shows how dark our times are but how necessary you are. First, get involved with Turning Point USA immediately and we'll help you out because we do this better than anybody else. It's our bread and butter to empower young patriots to fight and to scrap for liberty, even in the most hostile environments, will help build community. You'll find friends for a lifetime. It's what we do, it's my heart. For for the nation's young people, praise God, we've had hundreds of thousands of lives individually changed at Turning Point USA. It's been a move of God. But let me just tell you something that I wanna really zero in on, where you said wisdom, and I'm glad you said wisdom. Uh, That means somebody educated you. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, okay? And there is no wisdom in the academy, there's no wisdom in universities. What is the difference? Knowledge is facts and figures. What's the capital of California? who's the governor, all that's knowledge, okay? You could fill a young person's mind with knowledge, but they're devoid of wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of things that never change. Wisdom means that if you teach it today, it will be true 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. As it says in the scriptures, where does wisdom come from? From the fear of the Lord comes wisdom. Therefore, if there's no God, there's no wisdom, which is why there's no wisdom at most universities, because there is no God. And so... Continue to dwell on that question of what is wise. And here's how you just ask that question. Will this be true 100 years from now? If the answer is yes, you have found something wise. If the answer is no, it matters, but it's not as important. We must steep our children in wisdom. How do you do that? You read the great books. You study Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Augustine, Hume, Burke, Machiavelli properly. You know, you study the great... The thinkers of the West, what they were right about, what they were wrong about, and then of course the Scriptures, and this is why the founding fathers. I, I believe people say, Charlie, how do we restore America? The founding fathers gave us a roadmap. We just have to take a U-turn and go back to the starting point of the promise of the Declaration and the Constitution. The more I study the framers and the founders, the more thankful I am to God that we live in this country. I can't tell you how profound I believe divinely inspired. I truly believe that you look at Genesis 1-1, Mount Sinai, the resurrection of Jesus, and then you could go fast forward in time, the creation of America are some of the most important moments in history. And of course, the resurrection is much more important than the creation of America, but there's nothing quite like America in the history of self-government. Why? It's because the founding fathers wrote everything based on things that will always be true not the things that happened to be true then. They did not base the Declaration or the Constitution based on what the weather was like today. They based it on principles of eternal importance. And that should always be our true north.
0: Unbelievable, thank you.
2: Hey Charlie, I'm just, I'm just so impressed, man, at, at the remarkable life you've lived so far. Um, But you you did touch on a very simple hierarchy earlier. You said God, man, nature. And I'm just curious, what what would be your explanation as to why there is such such an attack on the seemingly infinite human hierarchies that we have in the world?
1: That's a really important question. So uh, they they say they want egalitarianism, but in reality, they want to be on the top of the hierarchy. Uh, These are people that have the religion of power. They won't always tell you. Um, Joseph Stalin, I believe, was one of the most evil people ever to live. Joseph Stalin was a very interesting person. I could talk about Stalin at length. If you haven't studied Stalin, you should. What was so perplexing is he was a seminary student, and he was number one in his seminary. He knew the scriptures, he knew God, and he decided to challenge him. Uh, and that, that's, that's very sick if you think about it. I really believe Stalin had the spirit of Lucifer, knowing God and, and rebelling and trying. And by the way, he was a miserable, paranoid man. Stalin created a movement. He in, inherited Lenin's movement, but he always said egalitarianism, equality. That's not true. Stalin had 100,000 personal armed guards because he was afraid of somebody going after him. It was, it was equality of poverty for you and the spoils and the wealth for me. So the reason they want to disrupt the hierarchy is they want to be in charge. Why? Because Stalin aside, because he didn't believe the promise of the scriptures, obviously, but he did, he did outwardly want to challenge God, is that they believe this is all there is. And they believe this is the whole ballgame. If you look at your existence, that there is no eternity and there is no judgment, then you can get to yourself to the belief of, I better collect as much stuff and as much power and make myself like God today. That is what motivated Pharaoh. That is what motivated every Caesar, king and czar, Alexander the Great. But if you then believe a little bit that even no matter how many lands spoils, you know, pieces of gold or silver that you might accumulate, that there is a God above you that should then restrain your action just from temporal material accumulation. Why are they trying to get rid of the hierarchies? Not that they don't believe in them. is that they want to be on top of the hierarchy. These people are driven to become tyrants. Unbelievable. Unbelievable.
0: Have we got time for one more? One more question. Okay. Okay. All
1: right. Yeah. It's interesting. We, I, I have to get on a nationwide prayer call with the great Jack Kibbs. And so I have a very specific for the Nashville shooting, I have a very specific end time, but I'm gonna go right up against it and then push it a little bit even beyond that. So we'll do another is that okay, you're getting yep. another question? One one. Here we get go. Get your best one ready over there, Mike. This is Katie. Um, I'm in the HR industry and
2: I'm in the hiring space. And in a few weeks, I have the opportunity to speak at an HR event where I'm pushing against DEI, which is wow. diversity, equity, and inclusion. And
1: I'm, I'm encouraging other HR leaders to disrupt hiring practices based upon race and gender. If you could give me one to three main points of uh, what you why you think why DEI should stop, what would those be? Well, first of all, God bless you. I mean, the, the essence of your question is um, like trying to reclaim some of the most totalitarian corners. I, I can't tell you how much damage HR departments have done to once-functioning companies. Here's a couple questions you can ask your fellow, you know, HR commissars. You're not that fellow, but, you know, they happen to be somewhat, let's just say, um, Soviet. So <laughs> the um, question... What matters more, things you can change or things you can't change? Ask them that question. When we're trying to create a moral dimension or a landscape, what matters more, things you can change or things you can't change? They will answer that correctly because they don't really, really realize it. They'll say, oh, things you can change. Well, then say, why are we emphasizing things you can't change, like race? Can't change your race, so why does it matter? Number two. The the, the next important question is, do we believe that separating separating people based on things they can't change is evil and wrong? They should say yes, say like segregation is wrong. If they say yes, then say okay, then the spirit of DEI puts a preference of segregation above that of a meritocracy. That's the final thing, which is, wouldn't it be beautiful if we restored the ideal that I don't know existed 10 years ago in HR departments, that merit, character, commitment matters a lot more? than melanin. So the final question I would ask with you is you have to ask your people, and you don't have to be confrontational, just be clear what matters more, melanin or merit? Melanin or merit. You gotta choose, guys. Are we gonna have an HR culture based on melanin or merit? Because right now we are saying merit does not matter, but melanin matters. And then finally you should say, I personally find it objectionable and wrong that we are going back into a trend where all of a sudden we think that race matters and decisions should be based on race. I want to live in an America where Martin Luther King said, very clearly, I don't care about the color of your skin, but the content of your character. That's what I would say at your conference in a couple of weeks.
0: Oh my, 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 my. How many people can see uh, the spirit of Solomon resting on a young man over here? Wow. Mike, you got one more?
2: Final question. Yeah, Final the question. question. All right. Hi, Charlie. Um, so, since you are a new father, I was wondering a personal question, but for your kid in, um, you know, homeschool, what are you going to do with the internet, phones, and the newly established AI and its biased information it gives kids, high schoolers for papers and all that type of stuff?
1: Okay. So, what am I going to do about internet? Yeah,
2: a- like phones and AI yeah. with your So, w- w- uh,
1: we're going to do our best to not have our daughter have a smartphone until she's 17 or 18. Um, and you can laugh all you want. I didn't get a smartphone till I was 21 because they didn't exist till I was 21. I'm going to try my best and I might fail to create an existence of awe and wonder of playing outside and using your imagination, not scrolling through TikTok. And I might fail. You, you might be able to pull this up 14 years from now and I might totally fail. Um, I, I believe that I believe that we in America have way too much faith in progress. I think that the amount of, uh, the fruits of modernity currently are poison. Yeah. And we have to slow down and go back to the roots of classical education. And I feel an obligation, and we're gonna be hawks with this. And screen time, guess my mic went off. Screen time, all that, we're gonna limit all of it. And we're gonna try to create an existence for our daughter of the same one that I grew up in in the 1990s. And it's gonna be a challenge and it's gonna be a battle, but um, I believe a moral obligation to do that. And I encourage every other parent to do the same. Amen, 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 amen. Please say one last thing, absolutely you can. If you feel moved, please follow the QR code. I know it sounds silly, but it's a way that we actually fight back against big tech censorship. It's how we're able to say, not canceled i know it's like oh charlie come on it's self-promotional it is but it also could bless you Jurgen. you send me beautiful notes about our podcast at times and that really blesses me this whole conversation will be re-aired actually on this qr code uh coming up on the weekend if you're okay with that Jurgen, i imagine yes absolutely 100 so, um, percent. and let me just end, end with this note which is i, I did tease this so you prob- some of you probably tonight, and I've seen you because I watched the audience, probably one out of every 30 of you, you kind of cross your arms and say, I've kind of heard this before. Charlie, I've done everything that has been asked of me. I watched Tucker Carlson. I bought the pillow. I've done everything that has been asked of me. Who bought the pillow? Promo code Kirk, by the way, and those slippers are terrific. I have Relief Factor. I reverse mortgaged my home. I have that thing that goes up the stairs. Charlie, I've done everything that's been asked of me. My challenge for you here tonight, because you already go to an excellent church, you have a fabulous pastor, you have a great community, is to dig deeper, pray fast this Easter season, and ask the Lord to say, what else can I give? What else can I do? Maybe you've gone off the path a little bit and you need to recommit. Maybe you've gone so far and extended, you need to pull back and reevaluate if it's the best use of your time. All of those are good ways to look at it. But the broader, the question here is, yes, things look troubling, but what am I going to do as an act of obedience and worship to the Lord? Here's what, I'm, here's what we are going to do. At Turning Point USA, we're starting more high school chapters. We're planting that, a, that apple tree. We're starting more college chapters. We're starting more homeschool hybrid groups. We're doing more campus tours. We're doing more church partnerships. We're doing more pastor summits. We are planting that apple tree today, even though it might look like the world is ending. Because guess what? We as Christians, we're not allowed to be nihilistic. We're not allowed to be cynical. The battle is already won, so it's time for us to get to the arena and start to fight. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Come on, how
0: good was that? Would you put your hands together? Come on, come on. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages